All right, tonight we continue our journey through the 1917 Schofield. Let's see what you remember. And we'll see if we can expedite relatively quick. All right, we're looking at using the 1917 Schofield Study Bible to study which theological system? Dispensationalism. What we have discovered and what I have really emphasized over and over and over is I don't care the name of the theological system, but if we're even remotely honest with ourselves, theological systems become our hermeneutical system, meaning we're not doing exegesis, we are doing eisegesis. We are reading into the text. We have to admit that. We have to acknowledge that. Nobody wants to ever admit that. No one wants to ever acknowledge that. Because the, the second we admit that or acknowledge that, then what are we saying? The Bible is not the authority. Our system is our authority. And nobody wants to admit that. I wish we would. Because if we, if we really admitted that, then we're no better than the Catholics. But we don't want to admit that, but it's the, it's the reality. We have shown how study Bibles have had a massive impact on giving people the system. Whether they even realize what's happening, they just, they, they just start by, by... And of course, when you become a Christian, you're taught a system way before you ever taught hermeneutics, way before you ever taught interpretation skills, you're given a system. You're told, believe this, believe this, believe this, believe this, and then magically, guess what happens when you read the Bible? It's there. Isn't that weird how that happens? Okay. And unfortunately, nobody, um, nobody ever wants to point out the game, but it's a game and it's a wrong game and it needs to be exposed and condemned. So, so we've done, we've dealt with that. And so we're looking at a particular system. This system is known as dispensationalism. Typically, when you do a study on dispensationalism, what you do is you go study the history of it. Then you just cover the basic points. We've, we've, we've not gone that direction. What we did is we went to the 1917 Schofield uh, Bible because of its historical significance and because it made this system very mainstream, right? It put it into the hands of the average person, right? And just because of the significance of the Schofield Study Bible itself. So we're going through the, the notes. We got to page five in his notes and we got a definition of dispensation. A, a dispensation is what? It's a period of time. Remember, let's not forget that. A period of time during which man is tested and respect of obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. All right. And each dispensation marks a dramatic change from the previous. So right? make sure we got that. It's a, t- it's a period of time, test, change. I think those are things I've really emphasized. I know Schofield doesn't emphasize that, but that's okay. We, we can add our own, right? Then how many dispensations are there? Seven. What are the seven dispensations? Innocency. Conscience. Human government. Promise. Law. Grace and kingdom. And how many covenants? Eight covenants. And what are the covenants? Edenic, Adamic, Noic, Abrahamic, Mosaic, Palestinian, Davidic, and New. All right? And we've been trying. And one of the things we've been. Well, yes? Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah, they, they, they modify and change, but yeah, so, uh, which they probably call it the church age. 
Yeah, they go to church, right. So, uh, but I think grace is, I like great, uh, I think grace is a better way of looking at it, but we could get into uh, debating that. So, what, one of the other things we're doing that's unique to studying dispensationalism that many do not do is we're studying dispensationalism and their connection with the covenants. I cannot stress the significance of that. All right, what was the last big covenant and last big dispensation that we covered? All right, we looked at the Abrahamic covenant and the dispensation of promise. And remember, this was very, very important. And remember, this is the one he tries to make a big distinction between the dispensation and the covenant. Why does he make such a big di- uh, distinction between the covenant and the, pro- and the dispensation? The dispensation ended because it was a test. And they failed it. And the covenant was all unconditional. Remember that? That's very important. Now, we all struggled. I, th- I thought I was going to get emails, but no, no one really mentioned anything. I really thought it was going to spark much more controversy than it did. But we, I think at least amongst us, we all at least, ha- I think everyone had a look on their face kind of like that whole weird dispensation of promise, how that ends. Like he sees a test and well, how did they fail the test? Remember how did they fail the test? They said, yes, we're going to keep the law. Remember, that's how they failed. And, and so the best we can interpret that to be, it wasn't so much that they should have said, no, we won't do it, is that we feel that what he is claiming is that they should have said, we can't. We can't. They said, yes, we'll do it. And that's, that's where they failed. But he said that they rashly turned from grace to law. And once you turn from grace to law, You cannot do it, you cannot do it, you cannot do it. All right, so that brings us to tonight. What are we going to discuss tonight then? Okay, we're going to have the dispensation of law and the Mosaic Covenant. All right, everybody should, that's that's why we reviewed all of them before I got there, right? So, all right, everyone there. So what two things are we going to be looking at? Which dispensation? Law and which covenant? Mosaic, because obviously the dispensational law and the Mosaic Covenant are very much connected. All right, so everybody with that? All right, we know that in Exodus chapter 19, right before verse 8, all right, we have the introduction to the fifth dispensation in the Schofield Reference Bible, page 94 for those online using it or if you have it in front of you. And immediately we see this. Here is the the subject heading. The fifth dispensation, law extends to the cross. He has here that this dispensation goes from Exodus 19.8 all the way to where? Matthew 27.35. Matthew 27.35. And so why is that important to note? Okay, it's long, okay. Okay, it's the majority of the Old Testament. There's one major theological issue. Everyone needs a hermeneutical issue. Let's see if anybody can figure it out. If you've been at a dispensational church, you should know this. This is a big issue. The law goes from Exodus 19.8 to Matthew 27.35. It ends at Matthew 27, 35. 
Okay, why does it end okay? Well, that's a good question, but that's not the hermeneutical issue. That means a whole bunch of stuff you read in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is under which dispensation? Law. That should massively impact how one interprets it. Okay, we've t- I've talked about this in, a, in the proper distinction between law and gospel. I can give you one section of scripture that is majorly controversial and how j- different churches interpret it are insane. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. I've done, I don't know now, 50 hours of teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, probably at least 50 hours. I've reviewed sermons from Iowa to who knows where. I've talked about it over and over and over and over. How do most people interpret the Sermon on the Mount? That either you should do it and you can do it. Or what's even worse is this is where most churches, especially churches who hold to maybe this view, that the Sermon on the Mount proves whether you're saved. My friends who go to church in Iowa, and when they told me, hey, our church is getting ready to do a series on the Sermon on the Mount, and I reviewed some of them, and I'm like, your church is insane. I'm like, because everybody's sitting there going, amen, amen, amen. And he's saying, this proves if you're genuine a Christian. I'm like, you're telling me everyone in your church follows the Sermon on the Mount? Nobody there follows it. None of us does. But if we understand it to be under the dispensation of law, then we definitely need to understand the dispensation of law. How does Schofield understand the dispensation of law, right? How should we? Now, because we have two concepts going on, right? Just please think about this. The law and gospel distinction. Does that come from a dispensational tradition? Law and gospel distinction. No, absolutely not. It comes from a Lutheran tradition, right? They're not dispensational, okay? Dispensationalism and the law and God distinction are coming from different worlds, We're trying to take the law and gospel distinction and see how it would fit in a dispensational system. That's kind of just an extra extra credit thing we're trying to do, right? Which is very, very important, okay? And this is why why I don't believe in being bound by a system, right? Because sometimes if you're bound by a system, you're like, well, I'm just going to look at everything from a dispensational point of view, and I'm going to ignore this Lutheran point of view that talks about the proper distinction between law and gospel, I'm not bound by a system. I can look at any system and do what? Try to figure out, hopefully, here's the system, look to the Bible and go, does that work? And does it matter if I disagree with any part of a system? I'm not bound by it. I'm not bound by it. So just keep that in mind because that's a major part of the Bible that's under that dispensation. In other words, you go from Exodus 19, and whether it's Matthew, whether it's Mark, whether it's Luke, or whether it's John, where would the dispensation end and all of those Gospels? When Jesus is hanging on the cross. Does that make sense? All right, so we need to clearly understand this dispensation because it may have a profound impact on how a dispensational the dispensationalists may handle some of it, correct? All right, so that, that's what we're going to have to try to figure out. All right, so where do we start? I'm going to start with, first of all, let's read Exodus 19.8. Let's make sure we read that. We need to have this down. All right. Here we go. It says, and all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. All right. Now, just note for Schofield, that's like, 
<laughs> okay, failure, failure, failure. You're done, okay? You just ruined the dispensation of grace. But they did not, they lost the dispensation of grace. They did not lose the covenant. They did not lose the covenant. Remember, that's a major distinction he makes. Okay, here is what he has to say on page 94. All right, everybody ready? The fifth dispensation law. This dispensation extends from Sinai to Calvary, from Exodus to the cross. Everybody got that? This dispensation extends from Sinai to Calvary, from the Exodus to the cross. Our promise, right. Okay, I'm sorry. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for catching that. Thank you. Thank you for catching that. Because actually, (laughs) the dispensation of grace is coming up. Yeah, okay. They left the promise for the law. All right. But they still maintain a covenant that's clearly based off grace. All right. The dispensation extends from Sinai to Calvary, from Exodus to the cross. The history of Israel and the wilderness and in the land is one long record of the violation of the law. I want you to hear that again. The history of Israel and the wilderness and in the land is one long record of the violation of the law. This entire dispensation is a record of what? Violating the law. The testing of the nation of uh, the, the testing of the nation by law ended in the judgment of the captivities, but the dispensation itself ended at the cross. So, in, and it's weird. The testing really failed. I mean, it, it, the testing, in a sense, was over relatively quick, right? If you go through all the different times that they are basically, they were placed into captivity. Every time they go into captivity, in a sense, their last time, I guess in the last time, it would have to be under the Romans, really, right? That's, that's the last captivity, right? That, that'll, I mean, because then they're just kind of wiped off the face of the earth. So really, that's the, they failed the test Relatively quick. They, they failed the test relatively quick. All right? Um, the dispensation itself ended uh, at the cross. Uh, and it says, this is, he kind of gives these points, all right? He breaks these down into four points. He doesn't explain what the points are. He just gives us these four points, all right? It doesn't tell me why he's giving me these four points. He just says, one, two, three, four. You ready? Number one, man's state at the beginning Exodus 19, 1 through 4. Man's state at the beginning. I'm assuming man's state at the beginning of what? The dispensation. All right. Exodus 19, 1 through 4. What do you see in Exodus 19, 1 through 4? Let's look these up just to try to. He does, since he doesn't offer any explanation, it's up to us to read it to try to figure out maybe what he's trying to tell us. All right. Exodus 19, verse 1. And the third month. When the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. They were, de- they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai and had pitched in the wilderness and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob and tell the children of Israel. You have seen what I did unto the Egyptians and how I bear you on eagles' wings and brought you unto myself. 
So what Schofield wants us to see is man's state at the beginning. And what's their state at the beginning? They had been delivered. They had been redeemed. They had been delivered and they had been redeemed from their bondage. All right? The second thing he wants us to see, man's or his responsibility, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Man's responsibility, he, he actually writes it, his responsibility, he's referring to man. His responsibility, look at Exodus 19, 5 through 6, what is the responsibility? Okay, now therefore, if, please note the word if, ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all the people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So what is his responsibility? To obey. He also wants us to see Romans 10, verse 5. So look at Romans 10, verse 5. Romans 10, verse 5. It's just interesting. He just throws these points in here randomly. But Romans 10, 5. He doesn't really do this for the other dispensations. What does it say in Romans 10, 5? Please note, in Romans 10, 5, he says that, that what we just read in Exodus is the, what kind of, light, what kind of righteousness? Of the, the righteousness that comes by the law. That's not the righteousness any of us will ever obtain. Does everyone understand that? Okay, that's very important. All right. Number three. Here we go. So what was number one? Man stayed at the beginning. Number two, his responsibility. Number three, what do you think it is? His failure. His failure. All right, I'm going to give you uh, two passages to look at. You can skim them really quick and summarize them. You ready? All right, go to 2 Kings chapter 17. 2 Kings chapter 17. Look at verses 7 through 17. 2 Kings chapter 7. He's, verses 7 through 17 is what he has down here. Second Kings 17, 7 through 17. Uh, I'm, I, I've said Second Kings 7, I'm sorry. Second Kings 17. Okay, all right. Okay, all right. Okay, I, oh, I was looking in my Bible at Second Kings 7. I'm like, I, this makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> Yeah, 17, 7 through 17. Everybody see it? In fact, this is what he has for the uh, title. The sins for which Israel was carried into captivity. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the statutes of the heathen whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. And they built them high places in all their cities from the tower of the watchmen uh, to the fenced city. And they set them up 
images and groves and every high hill and under every green tree. And there they burnt incense in all the high places, as did the heathen whom the Lord carried away before them and wrought wicked things to provoke the Lord to anger. For they served idols, whereof the Lord had said unto them, Ye shall not do this thing. Do you see kind of what's been going on? Right? They did what? I mean, that, that section right there, you may want to really write it down. Uh, I think everyone... Yeah, and then, then they caused their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire and use divination and enchantments and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke them to anger. You may want to write down Second Kings... 17, 7 through 17, 2 Kings 7, 7 through 17. You may want to circle it and put a couple of exclamation marks next to it because that really is, if you want to see man under the law, that sums it up. And I don't care what your, what your Christian's friends will say, that's man under the law in the church and in the Old Testament. We fail. We sin. We are idolaters. We are ungodly. That is, our, that is the state. That's been the state of the church. That's the state of Israel. Nobody wants to admit that. Everybody in the church wants to preach it in what way? That's what you used to be. But we're not like that anymore. But over and over and over, what do we see in your life, my life, and all of our lives? We see sin. We see selfishness. We say idolatry. And there, there you have it. That's... That's man under the law. They fell. What did they do? They fell. He, they also want us to look at Acts 2, 22 through 23. Acts 2, 22 through 23. What do you see in Acts 2, 22 through 23? Men of Israel, by your wicked hands, you killed the Messiah. That shows you how much they failed under the law, right? Yes? Okay, because remember, they did that under which dispensation? Under the law. They were under the dispensation of law leading up to the killing of Jesus. All right, everybody see that? All right. So what was number one? Man's state at the beginning. Number two, his responsibility. Number three? His failure. And then guess what number four is? The judgment. And guess where he wants to see us to find the judgment? Look at first, or Second Kings chapter 17. Now look at verses 1 through 6. Second Kings 17, 1 through 6. What do you see in the first six verses? Seven King, Second Kings, seventeen, one through six. Yeah, if you look at if you look at just starting, I think in verse four, it's about Israel and the ten tribes being carried away into where, Assyria. Everybody see that? All right. If you look at verse five. Then the king of Assyria came up throughout all the land and went up to Samaria and besieged it three years. And then in the ninth year. Of Hoshea, the king of Assyria, took Samaria and carried Israel away into 
Assyria. There you go. There's the judgment they're taking into captivity. And then guess where else he wants us to look for? You can also look at uh, 2 Kings 25. 2 Kings 25, 1 through 11. I wonder if that's Judah being carried away. That, that, yep, it's Judah being carried away. Yep. 2 Kings 25, 1 through 11. There's, so you have Israel the north and Judah the south being taken into captivity. So what is their judgment? Is captivity, right? Then he wants us, this is interesting, to look at Luke 21. Luke 21. That one, that one is, I got to look at because I don't know what's going on there. Luke 21. Hang on, let me get here. Luke 21. He wants us to see verses 20 to 24. Oh, I bet you I know what this is. Luke 21, 20 through 24. Do, do we know what this is referencing? What is Luke 21, 20 through 24 referencing? Do what? 70 AD. This is very important, all right? Here we go. Look at 21, 20. And when you shall see Jerusalem compassed with armies, then know that the desolation thereof is nigh. Then let them which are in Judah flee to the mountains and let them which are in the midst of it depart out and let that not them that are in the countries enter thereunto. For these be the days of vengeance that all things which are written may be fulfilled. But woe unto them that are with child and to them that give suck. Uh, in those days, for there shall be great distress in the land and wrath upon the people and they shall fall by the edge of the sword and shall be led away captive into all nations and Jerusalem shall be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. If you want to talk about a very important phrase in dispensationalism, you may want to circle that last phrase. They're going to be trodden down until the time of the Gentiles be fulfilled. So, and for this, the judgment of the dispensation of the law, they break the law quick, right? And there's three major judgments that are pointed to. What are the three major judgments? The Assyrian captivity, Babylonian captivity, and 70 AD. So the the judgment goes even beyond the next dispensation in a sense, right? Because the next dispensation begins at the cross, right? So... But they're still facing the judgments of it. Now, you could argue, how does that work? Don't know, but I just, I just think that that's fascinating. He's got 70 AD right there, which I, I love that, that 70 AD is, is mentioned there. Okay, so far so good? All right, now we'll jump to the next dispensation in a minute. All right, we'll jump to the next one in a minute, but what do we need to cover next? The Mosaic Covenant. We got to look at the Mosaic Covenant. All right. So, any questions about that dispensation? Okay. What's the most important thing to take from this dispensation? Well, it's that man fails when they are under law, and this would encompass a good portion of the Gospels. Now, depending on which dispensational school you go to, many of them will then take parts of the gospel and say, that has no bearing on us, no application on us in any way, shape, or form. That is under a different dispensation. 
All right, that's very important to realize because they, they, they'll throw out like entire sections of the gospel. Like that's not for us, has no bearing on us. That was under an old dispensation. Some people say, well, that's crazy. Others will say, well, that's good because now we don't have to figure out how we apply that, okay? <laughs> because others will say a law, a law, a proper law distinction will say it may be applicable in some way, but it's law and it condemns us, all right? We can't do it. So depending on how you approach it now, this gives us the Mosaic Covenant. Now, if you're looking at the Schofield 1917, you'll turn to page 95, and then right on, under chapter 20, the heading for chapter 20 is this, redemption, uh, experience self-known through the revelation of God's holy law. Then it says the law, the commandments, fifth, or Mosaic Covenant. Now, immediately he's placing the Mosaic Covenant right before what? What's in Exodus 20? The Ten Commandments, right? The Ten Commandments. So, so just right before that, he, he states it. And then underneath all of that, he has a pretty good, he has a, um, well, there's a lot here. I'm not going to go through all of it, but I'm going to at least read this one major paragraph about the Mosaic Covenant. Everybody ready? All right, here's number one. He's going to give us some individual points here, right? Now, typically, he gives us how many points when he talks about the covenants? Seven. I'm looking here. He's got two numbered. Hang on. I think he does not give us seven here, which means something was horribly wrong with him that day. Okay. All right. I don't know what was thinking. If you, I'm looking. There's got to be seven here. I'm, I almost feel like I feel like I should break it down into seven points. I almost feel like I have to. But he, like, what is wrong here? What, what are you doing, Schofield? Like, someone call on him right now and something happened here. Okay, but here we go. Here's his two major points he wants us to know about the Mosaic Covenant. You ready? Number one. What do you think he wants to tell us? It's given to Israel. It's given to Israel. It's given to Israel. Everybody got that? It's given to Israel. He doesn't explain much of what, what we're supposed to do with that fact. But it's given to Israel. I think we can argue in a historical standpoint, it's clearly given to Israel, right? I mean, we can we can clearly, there's no question about that. All right, number two, it's given to Israel, number two, in three divisions, each essential to the others and together forming the Mosaic Covenant. They're given in three divisions. Each are essential to the others and together forming the Mosaic Covenant. The, uh, so, okay, I'll, I'll let you get that down if you want to write that down. I want to know the three divisions, don't you? Right? He's going to take a minute before he gets us to the three divisions. What do you think the three divisions are? Moral, okay. Let's see if, let's see if you're right, okay? He probably calls them something different, but we'll, but that's, I think, essentially what they are. All right, here we go. You ready? Now, I'm going to read everything he has here. The, uh, the Mosaic Covenant, number one, given to Israel. Number two, in three divisions, each essential to the other and together forming the Mosaic Covenant. The commandments express the righteous will of God. The judgments governing the social life of Israel and the ordinances governing the religious life of Israel. So there's the three. He just gave the three, all right? So how did he name them, all right? The commandments, 
He's using a sp- specific words. Do you notice how he did that? The commandments express the righteous will of God. The judgments governing the social life of Israel and the ordinances governing the religious life of Israel. All right, and I'll give, you, I'll give you the scripture for each one he wants to break down. So everybody got this? All right, he says it's in the three divisions. What are the three divisions? He breaks them down with three words. What are the three words? Commandments, judgments, ordinances. Commandments, judgments, and ordinances. All right, commandments he has, what, which scripture do you think? Exodus 21 through 26. Exodus 21 through 26. The judgments governing the social life of Israel, Exodus 21, 1 through 24. Oh, I'm sorry. Exodus chapter 21 verse uh, to chapter 24, verse 11. Thank you for catching that. Exodus chapter 21, verse 1 to chapter 24, verse 11. I was going to shorten that way too much for us. Okay. All right, so let's make sure we get this. Everybody got this? All right, here we go. According to Schofield, the Mosaic Covenant, which is law, the law is broken into how many parts? Three. And these are three divisions, and they are essential to the others, together forming the Mosaic Covenant. And these are broken down into three ways. What are the three, uh, the, the three divisions? Number one, commandments. Number two, judgments. And number three, ordinances. All right? The commandments go from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 26. The judgments go from chapter 21, uh, verse 1, to chapter 24, verse 11. And the ordinances, which govern the religious life of Israel, go from chapter 24, verse 12, to chapter 31, verse 18. Yeah, uh, ch- uh, chapter 24, verse 12, to chapter 31, verse 18. All right, I'm going to break these down even a little bit more in a minute. Does everybody get that? All right, what are the three? Commandments, judgments, and ordinances. Okay, commandments do what? Express the righteous will of God. What do the uh, judgments do? They govern the social life of Israel. What do the ordinances do? Govern the religious life of Israel. Everybody have that down? All right, he says these three elements form the law as the phrase is generically used in the New Testament. In other words, when the New Testament refers to the law, it's just a generic term that may cover any one of those aspects or all three. Got that? Okay. Now he's going to break this down even more here, so stay with me, all right? The commandments and the ordinances formed one religious system. The commandments were a ministry of condemnation and of death. So what did the commandments do? What was their ministry? 
condemnation and death. The ordinances gave uh, in the high priest a representative of the people with Jehovah and in the sacrifices a cover for their sins and and an anticipation of the cross. It says the Christian is not under the conditional Mosaic covenant of works, the law, but under the unconditional new covenant. That's a major statement. Some people would immediately accuse him of being what? No, no, they would never accuse Schofield of covenantal. Antinomian. Okay, that's what I get accused of, okay? <laughs> people learn a five-cent theological word. Next thing you know, we start throwing it out at people. All right? That's a lot in that paragraph. There's a lot in that paragraph. Okay? I'm going to read it again. Make sure we got this, right? The Mosaic Covenant. Number one? Given to Israel. Number two? given in three divisions. Those three divisions are three words. Commandments, judgments, ordinances. Please know those three verses, those three words. These three parts are broken down. He, he, he breaks them down all in the book of Exodus, right? The commandments go from, they cover Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 26, right? Uh, the next are the judgments. They govern the social life. They go from chapter 21, verse 1 to 24, 11. Next, ordinances governing the religious life of Israel, Exodus 24, verse 12 to chapter 31, verse 18. And the commandments and the ordinances form one religious system. The commandments were a ministry of condemnation and death. The ordinances gave... Uh, in the high priest, a representative of the people with Jehovah, and in the sacrifices, a cover for their sins and anticipation of the cross. The Christian is not under the conditional Mosaic covenant of works, the law, but under the unconditional new covenant of grace. We are not under that covenant. Now, in what ways are we not under that covenant? Now this is where now this is where within dispensationalism you can get into some major controversy here, right? Okay? Because some dispensationalists believe what? Some dispensationalists believe those under that dispensation were saved not by grace but by works. Okay? That is a part of dispensationalism. Not all forms of dispensationalism. I won't even say classic. Some will say the ultra-dispensationalist, right? I went to at least one school that taught that, right? I went to at least one school that taught that you were saved differently under the old. And you can see why. Because if you go to the Old Testament, what do you basically get? Do this, do this, do this, do this. If you don't, die, 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 right? And you say, well, there was some grace there, but it was hard to see the grace, right? Because there was so much do this and die, do this. And they were always being judged, weren't they? All right? Others were like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. But they are, he is dogmatic to say, for the Christian, we are not under the Mosaic Covenant. 
We're under the new covenant. Now, if, whether we can debate all day what happened then, right? We can debate it all day, but what can we say? In what ways, now this is where, this is where people will immediately accuse you of being an antinomian. So this is where the debate really rages. How are we not under the Mosaic covenant today? Okay, so does that mean we don't have to do anything? Right, well, we, we know Christ fulfilled the law. The question is, then what, what does that mean for you practically? Okay, we're not saved by the law, okay. Does it mean anything else? Because the minute, the minute you start talking this way, someone's going to accuse you of being an antinomian. I just want you to realize. The second, I remember Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Yeah, you want to know when you've actually preached the gospel? When someone accuses you of being an antinomian. You've never preached the gospel right until you've... And that's Martin Lloyd-Jones, which everyone supposedly is like, Oh, he's great. Read his commentary on Romans. And he's so amazing. He's reformed. But then then if you'll preach the gospel, then you'll be accused of being an antinomian. And they would be like, No, if you preach the gospel and someone thinks you're an antinomian, now you're preaching easy believism. And Okay, whatever. It's, It's just so weird, like, you look. You actually look at some of these issues in a historical perspective, and then you hear Christians start saying things, and you just sometimes it's, you want to be patient, but you just want to go. You got literally no clue what you're talking about. You have no clue. You. It's like trying to talk to, you know, a kid who lear- just learned a few words and tries to tell the teacher that he knows how to read, and the teacher doesn't. You know, just because he knows two or three words, right? That's just, it's maddening, maddening. But when you look at it, this is very important. If we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant, practically, I need you to tell me practically what that means. Practically, what does that mean? Because you see what someone could say, right? What could someone say when they hear that we're no longer in the Mosaic Covenant? You can do whatever you want. Others will say, no, 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 you can't. Well, if we're not under the Mosaic Covenant, then what are we? So then what are the, pra- what are the practical then elements of this? So obviously we don't know. <laughs> I think that's the answer. We don't know. Well, now, I just want you to realize that's a major issue, right? If you've been a Christian this long and we don't know what to do, because clearly Christianity is massively divided under this point, Right? We're no longer the Mosaic Covenant. How dare you say that? You antinomian, easy believism, cheap grace. That is not godly. And you're like, well, whoa, wait, I'm not. Well, so then am I, am I under it? If I'm under it, then what does that mean? Okay, if we're, if we're under it, then that that's brings some serious ramifications. We can say this. The Mosaic Covenant clearly had three parts of the law, Right? We change the, the way they're described, right? We don't necessarily use that distinction between commandment, judgment, and ordinance. We use different terms. Typically, we go with the same threefold division, though, and we call it, what do we call it? 
Okay, ceremonial and civil. All right, now we both, we all would agree, everyone agrees with this. Everyone agrees that the ceremonial and civil, we are not under. Now, some will try to argue we are. Seventh day Adventists would try to put us under some of this. Some, some would. But most would say we're not under the ceremonial and civil. Because if we're under the ceremonial, then we got to start, you know, we got to start sacrificing it. Like some people are like, no, you're under the Sabbath. Well, if I'm under the Sabbath, then I'm under all of it. So I need to start sacrificing animals and I got to keep all of these feasts. And I got to, I mean, there's a million, I mean, don't, and I need to start killing people who break the Sabbath. I mean, there's a million, we're not under that system. So we're not under the ceremonial because we don't have a tabernacle. We don't have a temple. We don't have high priests. We don't have sacrificial system. We're not under it, right? All of that was fulfilled and Christ. Everyone seems to agree on that. Everyone seems to be happy to say we're not under the ceremonial. They say it all pointed to Christ. Some wants to put us under the civil, right? Some wants to put us under the civil. Nobody want, should want that. Nobody should want to be under the civil, all right? Because if... Okay. Well, you think you would still have to have the whole system, but I'm saying if we're under the civil, what's going to start happening? People are going to die, but then who gets to be the one? Like, then you have to be, you have to operate under what system if you're going to make the civil system work? A theocracy. Thank you. You have to be under a theocracy, right? You have to, I mean, that's the only way to make it work, right? You have to be under a theocracy. So we know. And so most people agree those two are gone. Now, this is where it gets weird. If those two are gone, How does the third stick around? Because men are like, ooh, don't touch the third. Don't touch that moral law. Did he, did, how, why did he state them again? So this comes down to what's the purpose of the law? What was always the purpose of the law? To show us we can't. Right? Now, Christianity comes along and say, no, Christ restated it because we can. See, this is a massive divide in Christianity, right? Because we're, everyone's happy with those other two being gone, right? Because people don't want to start killing people and it's just chaos. Like, you know, we, we kind of all agree those two, those two are gone, right? But everybody wants to maintain the moral law to some extent, extent right? They want to maintain it. Well, if, even if you say Christ repeated it, repeating it, or expect, in fact, Christ didn't just repeat it, he made it even worse. Because he made it very clear that the law always required more than an external obedience, it required an internal. All Christ did was make sure, because the Jews thought they could keep it. He was letting them know, you never did, you never will. Remember the rich young ruler? I've kept this. I've kept all these commandments since I was young. And then Jesus is like, oh, you have? Okay, this is simple. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor. And then he went, mm, nah, never mind, never mind. I mean, he couldn't do it, right? He knew he, he, knew he couldn't do it. Immediately proving condemned. So then, now, again, I have to ask the question then how are we not under it? Because if we're under it in any way, shape, or form, you see where this is going to go, right? 
Because if we're under it, what is going to be the reality of our life? Is it going to be any different than them being under it? We're going to be condemned, 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 condemned. Now, the minute if I say we're not under it, people will lose their minds and immediately say I'm an antinomian. Because they want us under it. But if you put me under it, All it's going to be is failure, 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 failure. I want to, I'm trying to drive that point home. I know it makes everybody nervous because everybody's like, no, 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 no. We have to have it. We have, if, if for whatever purpose it serves, what, what's, the, what's the purpose the law has always been? What has it been? It reveals God's holiness and our sinfulness. It reveals God's holiness and our inability. It condemns us to point us to Christ. So in that sense, it still, it, it still serves a purpose, but we can't be under it. And so how do Christians try to put us under it today? Oh, I know, I know I'm going to get myself in trouble with this. That's okay. At, at this point, who cares? Right? If you want to be under it, by all means, go be under it. But, you know, I, I know what I'm going to... Yeah, pat yourself on the back. You're under it. Congratulations. All you're going to do is fail, so it doesn't really matter to me. You can, you can brag all day that you've got the law. All right. So I want to make this very clear. This is very important, very important, very important. In what ways then are we not under it? Let's just think some specific ways. Clearly, we're not under it to gain righteousness, right? Remember, the righteousness that comes from the law equals death. We have the righteousness that comes by faith apart from the law. So clearly we are not under it when it comes to salvation. Everyone has to agree on that, right? Everyone has to agree. If you don't agree on that, then you believe we're saved by works. So everyone has to agree to that level. Now, then if I'm not under it for salvation, then here comes, oh, this is a big one. Am I under it to prove my salvation? Because many would say we are. If, if, if we listen to lordship right here, what would be the proof of my salvation? My obedience to the law. Well, how could that ever prove my salvation? The only way it could prove my salvation is if my salvation is dependent upon me keeping the law. But, but not only that, it, would, it, it implies that I can do it, but I can't. So anyone who takes MacArthur's test and even remotely honest with themselves would have to come to which conclusion? That I'm lost. And again, let me state it again. How can righteousness, this is very important, how can a righteousness that comes from the law prove a righteousness that comes by faith? A practical law-keeping cannot prove a perfect law keeping that is imputed to you. You can't, it's the most ridiculous. It's like theologically like when you, and I hate when I try to talk to someone like this and just their eyes are glossed up and they just, just looking at it like they don't have no idea what you're talking about. And it's like, you just ask the question, can a practical righteousness prove an imputed righteousness? And they will say, yes. And the minute they say yes, 
I just want to go drinking heavily because there's no, there's no point having, there, what is, there's no point in the conversation. It's over. Because it literally, logically cannot. One is imputed, meaning it does nothing. It just declares you to be something you are not. It declares you to be something that you are not, that you can never be. So in that sense, we're, not, we're clearly not under the law that way. So some people want to say, well, we're under the law in the sense that it's a guide or it directs us. Okay, if you want to say it's a guide to direct, you say I'm under it, but I can't be under it for justification. I can't even be under it to prove my justification. So I don't know in what ways you want to be on. He's just straight up says, what did Schofield say? Do I need to read it? We are not under it, okay? We are not under it. In fact, what did he say? I'm going to read it carefully. The Christian is not under the conditional Mosaic covenant of works, the law, but under the unconditional new covenant of grace. And he offers some scriptures. Let's see what we find here. How much time do we have? We're not going to get to the next dispensation. Okay, we got five minutes, all right? Everybody ready to read really fast? And just tell me what you find here. If you don't like what you find here, that's okay. Here we go. You ready? Go to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 27. I'm going to have to try to read this like 100 miles a second. All right. Romans chapter 3, 21 through 27. All right. Everybody there? I'm in Romans chapter 2, so therefore it's making absolutely no sense. All right, here we go. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. What kind of righteousness now is he going to talk about? Without the law. Everybody see that? Even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference for All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. To declare, I say at this time, his righteousness that he might be Just and justifier of him which believe in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded. By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. There you have it. Do you see that? That is clearly not a part. That is clearly not what? Under the Mosaic covenant in any way you should perform. It's not under the law. He wants us to look at Romans chapter 6 verses 14 through 15. Romans chapter 6, verses 14 through 15. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. Now, how, how does sin no longer have dominion under, uh, over us? Now, see, some people will read this to mean what? You can basically be sinless. But how am I no, how is sin no longer have dominion over me? Because I'm, because I'm under grace. I'm in Christ, right? Verse 15, what shall we say? Or what then 
Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid. We shouldn't. I do agree we shouldn't. But we are going to do what? We're going to sin. We're going to sin. All right? We're going to sin. And then he goes on to say, Know ye not that to whom you yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants of ye, of ye are to whom you obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. Practically, what do we tend to do? We sin. So practically, what do we have a tendency to be? A servant to sin. Sin seems to have dominion over us practically. How does then he not have dominion over by faith. That's the, that's the only way. You have to understand the difference between positional and practical realities or everything begins to fall apart. Then he wants us to look at Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2. Everybody there? All right, Galatians 2. Look at verse 16. What does Galatians 2.16 say? No man is justified by observing the law. By faith in Jesus Christ. Everybody see that? All right. There's a whole lot more here he wants us to look at, but we don't have time. So we will have to stop. He basically wants us to look at a good portion of chapter 3 of Galatians. Basically going from 10 to 26. But I don't have time to look at all of that right now. Right? Everybody see that? Any questions? So, dispensationalism draws a hard picture that we are not under the law. We're not under the Mosaic Covenant. We are not under it. Now, what our responsibility to it, how it we do believe it serves as a guide. We do believe it's God's righteous will. We do believe that, right? We do believe that we are called to be holy. We do believe that and we should pursue it. But we are not under it in what sense? For our salvation. And we're not even under it to prove our salvation because it would never prove my salvation ever. My, my actions would never prove my salvation. Well, you know what? My actions may prove my salvation according to Bobby's standards. My actions may prove my salvation to Stephen's standards but my actions would never prove my salvation if they are laid next to what? God's law. And that's where, when you're trying to talk to someone under lordship, they never catch on to that. They're like, there has to be a difference. There has to be a difference. A difference according to whom? You? Because if there has to be a difference according to God's law, there is no difference, okay? Because I fall short in thought, word, desire, Feeling, action. One way or the other. And, it, and we always know what the, the scriptures I'll go to, the go-to ones, right? Love the, love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. Has anyone pulled that off? Love your neighbor as yourself. Be ye holy as God is holy. And if I want to add another one, be ye perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, if you compare your life to that to prove your salvation... You failed. And remember when we looked at, I think, MacArthur's test, one of the tests was to love God. And then and, and what did he say? You're to love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. But nobody will do it. <laughs> That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Here's a test that's supposed to prove it, but you're not going to pass the test. <laughs> so, 
It makes no sense at all. Literally no sense. Because anyone who's remotely honest would be like you fell. But there, there is then the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And the Mosaic dispensation, all right? Now the next one begins is grace, according to the 1917, even though I almost referred to promise as grace, but the, the covenant, the covenant of promise, right? The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of grace. Let's make sure we get that out of the way. The dispensation of promise is not a dispensation of grace. Everybody know, everybody understand that? Everybody, does that make sense? The Abrahamic covenant is of The Abrahamic covenant is a covenant of grace. Okay, if it's unconditional, it's grace, right? right? It's grace. The dispensation is not, everybody understand that, it is not according to the classic dispensationalism. Why? Why is the dispensation of promise not one of grace? Because it's a test. It's a test. That won't, that, that, you can't, there's, if it's a grace, there can't be a test, Right? And, or unless Christ was going to be the one to fulfill it. They fell it, right? And he believes they felled it because they turned from the promised to the law. Right, right. That's where, that's that. Now, whether you agree or disagree, at least understand the system, right? But even though they fell under the dispensation of promise, they do not lose the covenant. They do not lose the covenant where a lot of people believe they lost it. And guess who got it? The church. Even though the church is no better than them. Okay, right, which, okay. Which almost would mean that they would have to believe that they were under a covenant of works if they lost it, right? They would, they would get mad if I said that. But if you believe they lost it, you have to put them under a covenant of works, Right? Because if it was a covenant of grace, so what they typically do is they say the covenant, they typically say the covenant of grace was never made with the nation. It was made with God's people. So therefore, they can remove the nation from it. But it's really hard to get the nation out of it if you just read your Bible. It's very hard to get the nation out of it. All right. Does that make sense? I know there's a lot of information. That, that one, that one, whew. There's a lot going on in that one. Man, that's hard to even keep my mind, keep it straight in my head, and I'm trying my best. I think the next couple of ones should be relatively, well, I'm not going to say, because I'm going to say it'll be easy and then we'll get one and <laughs> yeah, we'll just, we won't. All right, let's pray. Lord God, we come before you this evening. Lord, if maybe if the only lesson we can take from this tonight is that we all sitting in this room and anyone listening online, if we're honest with ourselves, your law condemns us. Your law reveals that we are incapable of keeping it. And our only hope is in the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Let us be grateful for that and let us hold, hold to and cling to the grace that is found in Christ because any attempt to establish a righteousness on our own will only prove that we can't and lead to condemnation, shame, and death. We ask this in Jesus' name. And God's people said,